went on a date. Oh, how'd it go? Oh, we're engaged. Right. <laughs> Good morning, good day, and good evening. And good night. Good night. Welcome. To the Insomnia Report. Episode 26? Yeah. Wow. That's how old I am. Oh my god. Ooh. So this one's special. I didn't even realize that. It is. Almost to 30. Yes. If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you have listened before, welcome back. We're so happy to have you. I'm Margo. And I'm Elizabeth. And we're the two friends that like to talk about the things... That keep us up at night. This week we have another classroom edition for you. So things we wish we learned or something of that matter. Mm-hmm. So get your pencils and notebooks. Here we go. Get your tablets. Whatever the kids do to take notes these days. Your crayons. No. Do do like high schoolers these days just do they give them tablets at school? I don't. I don't do they know. Use notebooks anymore? I'd like to know. I have no idea. I, I prefer writing things down, and scientifically, it's been yeah. proven that it helps with memory, like login or something. That's oh, what yeah. I tell myself. <laughs> I'm like, if I write it down. Yeah. Anyway, I will go ahead and light the candle. What's okay. been on your noggin? What's kept you up? Well, uh, you guys can't see because this is a podcast, but... I am currently wearing two masks. <laughs> you may hear them brush against the mic when I move my head. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure I have COVID, so that's fun. Mm. And uh, yeah, that's mostly what's been keeping me <laughs> keeping me up the past couple of days. Yep. Yeah, I I don't feel too terrible, so that's good. That's Are good. you sure you're good to record? Yeah. Okay. Let me know. No, say, I'm like good. say blue banana if you're not like okay. at any point. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> This too shall pass. Can you smell and taste? I can. Okay. But who knows how long right. that will last. That's ominous. You know, like, I'm, I'm afraid that I'll lose my taste and, like, never regain it. No. Knock on wood. Yeah, I'm knocking for you. Thank you. I appreciate that sentiment. What about you? I accidentally signed up for a 5K, and oh. I, I hate running, so that will be interesting. And it's through work, and obviously since everyone's remote... It's not like a actual course or anything. We're just raising money, and then we have to run a 5K before the month ends, mm. and I don't like to run. You can walk it, right? I th- I'm going to. Like, they can't stop me, right? right. Like, they can't, like, make you run. Especially if everyone, all my coworkers are in New York, and I'm one of three people in Chicago, so. Right. No one's going to know. So come at me. So that'll be interesting, but it's to raise money for autism acceptance month so that's exciting that's nice um so we'll see who knows maybe maybe something will come from it and i'll find a newfound hobby probably not though you never know the only running i do is running late and i'm the like get to the airport (laughs) seven hours early type person you know so oh yeah i have that going for me i don't know if nothing else you'll just be outside a lot more (laughs) 
fire is so weird, man. Like, what That's even? what the cavemen said, too. <laughs> I bet they did. I bet they said that. Like, what is it? It's energy. Okay, but, like, I don't understand. Are you high? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm curious. So, I go first. Yes. I have a feeling you might be able to guess what it is, only because we talked about it earlier this week. Oh, I think I have an idea. But earlier this week, I looked at you and, and I said, wait, so what happened when the music died? Oh. And lo and behold, it opened up this giant rabbit hole that sucked me in. And then we we watched the Weird Al Yankovic Star Wars version yeah. of American Pie. Right, because that was the only version I ha- knew growing mm. up. Yeah, I, I realized there was this whole big thing, but it kind of blew my mind, and then I had no idea about it and, like, the significance of things, so mm. that's what we have today. Mm. Uh, so rock and roll was, without a doubt, inspired by rhythms and blues, but we're going back to the 50s, and rhythm and blues was at the time, to black. So when you think about the music of the early 50s, you think of the typical, quote, innocent, kitschy, you know, white Christmas where they're singing about snow and how they're sisters and they have that (laughs) vibrato that's really corny. So that was the music of the time. It was was kind of cliche, it was short, boppy, but people really liked rhythm and rhythm and blues is essentially the foundation for all music is today. Mm. So in the mid 1950s, that quote, big band music was declining in popularity. And there was a disc jockey. And I just learned this week from Elizabeth that disc jockey actually means DJ and it blew my mind because I thought it was you know in the Olympics when they do like throw in a disc but like on a horse anyway so there was a DJ by the name of Alan Freed who was controlling the airwaves in Ohio and he played a significant role in music today he had a very upbeat personality and he was on a rock and roll show that he had created called The Moondog House, and it was very popular, and he was actually promoted to get a position at a New York position so he would receive a bigger audience. So there was no doubt that R&B was popular because it was different. It had, you know, it wasn't just the the cheap, light mm-hmm. music. It, it had, you know, soul to it, and... Wait. Does does R and B stand for rhythm and blues? Yeah. See, I didn't know that either. Okay, yeah, oh my God. there you go. Okay. R and B was popular, but it was looked down upon because racism. Mm, not surprised. So Alan referred to it as rock and roll because the white audiences would they would have a certain perspective if they were to say it was rhythm and blues because the listeners were also incredibly segregated. Mm. Typically, DJs, or I'm not sure if you knew this, but at the time, most white artists were just covering black songs. Like Elvis? Yeah, Elvis, but almost all of the artists of the time. Mm. So Alan was a little bit of a hipster at the time, and he was like, "Mm, you know what, this version's better. So he would actually play the original 
soundtracks. Mm. And according to an article in the Wall Street Journal, Alan helped shape teenagers to have a more quote-unquote tolerant view of integration because he had stayed true to the black artist roots. Wow. At the time, before then, like I had mentioned, if you looked at the top 10 songs, nine times out of 10, they were white artists covering a song by a black person. And mm. most of the time, they did not get proper credit for it, mm. as you know. Like the Elvis is the Hound Dog song mm. is oh, one of them. And so naturally, conservatives and white people said this music is corrupt in our children and they hated <laughs> rock and roll and i don't know if you have ever heard that stigma but it's like rock and roll is like the devil's music and it, it's horrible and it's making our kids sex crazed delinquents but freed influenced what is now considered to be top 40 today and the way he promoted music and his way to get people exposed to new songs wow he also created the Moon Dog Coronation Ball, which was the first rock and roll concert in history, and tickets sold out within a day. He actually faced heat in Boston when he was hosting the event that featured Jerry Lee Lewis, and Alan apparently said, it looks like the Boston police don't want us to have a good time, and Freed was arrested and charged with inciting a riot, similar to the movie we watched the other day. Oh my god, because of rock music? Yeah, or it was because, you know, these a lot of people were gathering. I think the venue oh. that they had was, it had the capacity for half of the amount of people oh, okay. because it was such a big deal and it was like the first of its time. Mm. And, you know, I... I don't know if it was the police trying to monitor things or if it was people protesting, being like, we don't like this music or whatever it may be. I'm, I'm speculating at mm. this point. But he, you know, said, oh, you know, the police don't want us to have a good time. And apparently, like, things kind of broke out. Mm. I see. So fun fact about Jerry Lee Lewis. He wrote the song Great Balls of Fire. Oh, yeah. You know that one? Yeah. I, also, I don't know how this keeps happening on our show, but he <laughs> married his 13-year-old cousin. Oh, my God. I know. This is like the it's third like time. Every episode, this has <laughs> happened. I don't know. Why? They were Why? like, they were third cousins, but it was still her so. his cousin, and she was 13. Like, wait, that, that's uh, not how uh, This oh is not in God. the 1800s anymore. It was oh never even God. okay then. Oh, my God. Anyway, okay. like. Great. So that, like, essentially blacklisted him, but mm. more on that later. Okay. Alan, even though he was, you know, accused of starting a riot, mm. his downfall was actually due to claims of Paola. Have you ever heard of Paola? No. It is when a DJ accepts money to play certain records, and the mm. government started to look into this further. So in simple terms, it's illegal to pay a radio station or a DJ to play a song without disclosing it's a promotional effort. Kind of like mm -hmm. now on Instagram, you have to always have something that says hashtag ad. Mm -hmm. So Freed was accused of this and he was fired because he declined to sign a statement by the FCC that he had accepted anything. However, the thing was this happened in 1959, which was before it was actually made into a law. Mm. And at the time, it was normal for people to get paid because there wasn't anything 
you know, wrong with it or it wasn't ever a flag, but it is speculated that Alan was considered to be a scapegoat for DJs at this time because he was being out of the norm. He was doing things that people didn't like. He was Mm -hmm. playing these different artists. So it was kind of a way for people to, you know, silence him. Mm Mm-hmm. So, was it the government who brought him down? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. But it was, you know, created a law in the 1960s, but obviously, like, DJs get paid, but it's mm-hmm. different if it's like, hey, you know, I just released a record called, like, Candlestick by Margot, and I, I'm going to pay you $1,000 to play mm-hmm. it and say that you love it. Got it. Versus, like, okay, here's whatever record deal mm-hmm. or here's what you're going to play. So it like, it wasn't authentic. So, but at the time it, it wasn't a law for DJs. Mm-hmm. So he, like I said, was essentially a scapegoat because mm-hmm. he was the DJ that got the most heat for it or the one that was kind of like a warning to other people. Got so mm-hmm. unfortunately he was blacklisted from the world of music and he couldn't get any other big, DJ jobs after that and then he actually passed away five years later in 1965 at the age of 43 oh my gosh so young Mm -hmm. but it is I believe it's because of him that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland because that is where he started his DJ career wow so that was just kind of like a little preface like Mm -hmm. but my main thing is about Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly. In 1957, Buddy Holly and the Crickets song That'll Be the Day offered a new, unique sound, and the song was wildly successful and was an instant hit. Charles Harden Holly grew up in Lubbock, Texas, and was nicknamed Buddy by his mother because she thought his name was too mature for a young boy. Okay. His mother thought that every single one of her children needed to be able to play an instrument. So Buddy grew up playing the violin and the piano. That's important. Mm-hmm. I think so too. I give her props. Yeah. My mom always said an instrument, a foreign language, and be able to swim. Mm. I can dog paddle. <laughs> and the others, no. Swimming is the most important out of those. Right. Things. Anyway, I digress. So... He played the violin and the piano, and they were a very musical family. He didn't really like the piano or the violin too much. I mean, they were in Texas, so they were more into, like, the country music. Mm-hmm. However, he one day saw one of his classmates with a guitar, and he's like, I want one. So he actually got one. His parents got one from a pawn shop, and his brother Travis taught him how to play. So as he got older, he tried to make it as a country singer. He went out to Nashville where he signed with Decca Records, but he didn't get a whole lot of traction from the records he was making or the, apparently even the quality of the records were uneven from whatever studio he was working with. So nothing really came from that too much. However, none other than Elvis Presley came to perform in Holly's hometown And Holly actually got a chance to open for him. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. This was a huge turning point for his career, not only because he got to meet Elvis, who wasn't that big at the time, Mm -hmm. like he was, but he hadn't like, you know, made it 100% yet. 
and they bonded and Buddy even got to play on Elvis's guitar and that was also like he was very inspired by Elvis so he's like okay gotta rebrand and this is kind of the direction I'm going to go. So he gathered up some people and he was like okay I'm going to do a combo of rhythm and blues and rockabilly which is like what Elvis was. Mm. It's rock and country. They called it rockabilly. So they named themselves Buddy Holly and the Crickets. So they became the standard for rock music today with the format of the two guitars, a bass player, and drums, as well as they were one of the first artists to create original music. Wow. So Buddy Holly and the Crickets eventually got a manager named Norman Perry. And Norman helped them quite a bit because he had great equipment. He saw potential in Buddy. But in some articles I read about him, he was described as the martini lounge salesman who kind of cut corners for a buck. Mm. Nice man. Like, used car salesman. Right. Like, kind of gross. Right. Kind of yeah, yeah. Yeah. A little bit. The potential that Norman Perry had seen in Buddy was his ability to be creative and innovative and his ability to, you know, write his own songs. When they were creating a record in the studio, they started to develop new tactics such as different microphone placement techniques. They also used echo effects or overdubbing. And in the 1950s, this meant they would layer different sounds or recordings over each other to create, you know, different layered effects. Mm. And at the time, this had never been done before. So it added extra elements to just kind of like a 2D, here's the song. Mm. The band created some tactics. Their creativity helped get one of their songs, That Will Be The Day, to become an instant number one hit, and it was what put them on the map. So the band, you know, got really excited. They were all over the radio, and eventually they could start touring. So one part of their tour was they were booked to play at the Apollo Theater in New York. For those of you who don't know, the Apollo is a famous historical theater that played a major role of the development of jazz, swing, bebop, rhythm and blues, gospel, and so on. Additionally, it was primarily a place for black performers. You have to remember this was the 50s, so things were very different. Black and white audiences and performance didn't intertwine. Mm -hmm. So it was to everyone's surprise when this tall, lanky white boy from Texas shows up on stage and he's essentially singing in a stylized hiccup and everyone's like, excuse me, I was expecting jazz and what is this? As it turned out, the booking agent had made a mistake because he thought he was booking the blues band, the Crickets, instead of Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Oh. At first, you know, the audience was skeptical. Holly turned to his bandmates and said, all right, let's do a bow diddly, bow diddly. And then they started playing. And I just okay. like imagined this like John Mulaney type guy. <laughs> he does kind of look like John Yeah, Mulaney kind of. With, in the suit and everything. You just got to put the glasses on. The right. horn rim. Like that was his signature. I love those glasses. Me too. So cool. So cool. They ended up touring all over the U.S. And they were featured on American Bandstand and The Ed Sullivan Show. 
Fun fact, my grandma actually won a Best Smile contest on American Bandstand wow. when she was a teen after That's she got amazing. her braces off. Anyway, they even got to travel to Australia, and they did an extensive tour of the UK as well. Can you imagine flying to Australia in the 50s? No, I can't even imagine now. I know. Such wow. so long. When Buddy was 21, he met Maria Elena Santagio. And he said the minute he saw her, he knew she was the one, and he asked her out that day. On their first date, he proposed to her. Wow, that's moving very quickly. Yeah, it is. I will say when my grandparents met, they met on a blind date. And on the date, my grandpa said, you're going to be the woman I marry. And then, like, they got engaged, I think, three months later. That's so cute. But, I mean, things were different then, you know? But Very true. So did she say yes to Buddy Holly? She did. So when Buddy announced that him and Maria were going to get married, Norman Perry, their manager, didn't approve of this. And he advised Buddy to keep their marriage a secret because it might make female fans upset and they would lose a following. So if anyone were to ask who this chick was, they were to say that Maria was the band's secretary. I don't like that. I don't either. It's super shady. And this obviously rubbed Holly the wrong way because, you know, he was in love with her. He wanted to feel supportive. And it was tipped off to Holly that Petty was being shady and he was pocketing the band's money for his personal account. So in December of 1958, Holly actually ended his association with Petty, and the Crickets wanted to keep Petty as their manager. So Buddy Holly and the Crickets split up. Wow. And at this point, Petty was still hanging on to the royalties. Due to the laws at this time, any royalties would be frozen until any and all disputes are resolved. There was definitely tension between Petty and Holly because of the money. It was also said from other sources and through interviews with former cricket bandmates, there were other reasons leading to the breakup that are a little bit more understanding. For one thing, Buddy was incredibly ambitious and he wanted to continue to propel and develop his musical career further. So he had sights on moving from Texas to New York to try to make it with bigger record and publishing companies and trying new things. He knew that he wouldn't be able to grow where he currently was. And therefore, that was a main reason why he wanted to end the partnership with Petty. Initially, the bandmates were aligned with also moving to New York, but deep down, they wanted to stay in Texas. So Petty actually found out this was going to happen. I'm not sure how he found out, but he spoke with the cricket bandmates and essentially said, hey, you know, if you move to New York, you'll be sorry for it. And he was holding the money over their heads and saying, you know, I'm not saying I I know what will happen, but this was enough for the crickets to stay with Petty, although... A former bandmate later remarked he didn't really think of it as Buddy and the Crickets breaking up. It was just Buddy and the Crickets were no longer playing together. Again, while it's true, Petty may have been a little shady and he definitely had control over the money and there was 
absolutely tension. You know, breakups are hard. But a lot of this image of Petty comes from the book Rave On, the Buddy Holly biography by author Philip Norman. That being said, I just want to caution that I couldn't find all that much more about if Petty was as sketchy as he's portrayed or what his intentions were, but regardless, the royalties for Buddy were put on hold and him, Maria, moved to New York. But because he had this new financial strain, he had to form a new band and find something else to do in the meantime. So he reluctantly joined a tour called the Winter Dance Party Tour, and there were several other upcoming stars being featured. One of them was Richie Valens, who was 17, and he had a hit song, La Bamba. Is that La Bamba? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that one. I don't know any of the words. I, do <laughs> I don't either. Spanish. I know the rhythm. Yes. And then there was also J.P. Richardson, who was also known as the Big Bopper, and he was a disc jockey at the time, and he had a really big personality. He was kind of quirky. Like, I, I just imagine him being on SNL. Oh, yeah. Like, that's the best way to describe him. Mm-hmm. So... Buddy decided, okay, you know what, I'll go on this tour. So he found a couple of different people to join in his band because, you know, him and the Crickets were no more. So he found additional drummer, guitar player, and bass player. And the tour kicked off in January 1959 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The logistics for the tour was essentially a trash fire, and it was doomed from the very beginning. They were to travel to 24 different cities in the middle of a Midwest winter, Hmm. but the destinations didn't make any sense at all, and they didn't take into account the distance between them. According to a Buddy Holly historian, Bill Greggs says in a quote, it was essentially like they took a bunch of darts and threw them on the map. It was the tour from hell and... That's what they named it, and it's not a bad name to describe how it went. That doesn't sound very smart. I know. I, Man, I don't... I mean, they didn't have a computer. They couldn't Google map it. They're like, okay, I'm going to go to Duluth, and then I'm going to go to Chicago, and then I'm going to go to South Dakota. Like, mm-hmm. I don't... So, hmm. all over the place, and as you and I know, Midwest winters aren't necessarily forgiven. Mm-mm. Not at all. What's more is they were traveling in buses that kept breaking down and they didn't have heat. So Jennings, the new bass player for Buddy, later remarked that it was so cold on the bus you had to wear every single layer of clothing and coats and everything you had just to stay warm. That sounds horrible. There was even one point where Buddy's drummer, Carl Bunch, was hospitalized because of frostbite. Oh my god. So now they make it into Iowa, and it's February, and Holly says, enough is enough. I don't want to take this bus for the rest of the trip. I just want to do laundry and rest. Mm. So he booked a charter plane. The plan was after the show in Iowa, they would fly out to Fargo 
They would rest, do laundry for everyone in the band, and then they would fly out to their next show in Moorhead, Minnesota. The thing is, there were a lot of musicians with them, um, and the plane could only fit four people. So one was for the pilot, one was for Buddy, and then there were spots for two more. The plan originally was it was going to be reserved for Buddy's bandmates, Tommy Alsop and Waylon Jennings. However, J.P. Richardson, or the Big Bopper, wasn't feeling so well, so Jennings said, hey, you know what, you're not going to be comfortable if you're feeling sick on that bus, so he gave his seat up to him so he could, you know, rest up and and get off the cold bus because it probably wouldn't have helped his health. Additionally, Alsip said to Richie, let's flip a coin for it, like call it kid. So Valens called heads and the coin did turn up to be heads. And when he won, he said, oh, I've never won anything in my whole life. According to Jennings in a memoir, him and Holly had joked between each other about the change in travel plans and how he gave up his seat. He's like, how could you like give it up? Like, you're my man. And they were like joking about it. Um, and Holly told him, well, I hope your damn bus freezes up again. To which Jennings replied, well, I hope your plane crashes. Oh, my God. No. And little did he know how heavy of a statement that would be. So the show was at Iowa's Surf Ballroom, and despite that it was a Monday night, it was fully packed. After the show, sometime around midnight, the musicians were packing up their things, and Valens, Richardson, and Holly were meeting with fans and signing autographs before they boarded the Beach Bonanza plane. So Peterson was the name of the pilot. He was 21 years old. And even though he was younger, he had four years of flying experience under his belt. And he got clearance from aircraft control uh, that, you know, they can take off. And sometime between 1230 and 1 a.m., they departed. However, no one was ever informed that there had been two winter weather advisories issued. Oh, no. And it wasn't, you know, at a time where you would get an alert on your phone. Mm -hmm. So he got the okay from, you know, control tower. So they took off. And after a while, the owner of the airline company went looking for the plane the next morning because it had failed to arrive in Fargo. So sadly, about five miles from takeoff, the plane was found in a frozen cornfield and none of the four survived. Oh, no. Roger Peterson, the pilot, was only 21. J.P. Richardson was 28. Valens was 17. And Buddy was only 22. Oh, my God. Holly, Valens, and Richardson had been thrown from the plane, and their bodies were yards away from the crash. However, the pilot still remained inside. And reports later said that the crash or the impact from the crash happened at about 160 miles per hour. Oh, my God. There is speculation as to what happened. And while the pilot, Peterson, as I mentioned, had experience, it was believed that the cause was because of the winter storm. And, you know, no one notified 
the pilot and the flying agency didn't know about it. It was also thought that the type of plane that Peterson was used to driving was a little like backwards from what he was used to. So mm. on the controls, he could have thought that it was showing that they were, you know, going up, but they were actually going down. Mm. Or, you know, there's there's a bunch of different theories as to what happened, but most theories are just, you know, it was the weather. But it is tragic nonetheless. The world found out through the radio or television, and when Buddy's mother found out, she was listening to the radio, and she had screamed and collapsed. Buddy's wife, Maria, she found out through the television, and a couple of days later, she actually suffered a miscarriage. Oh my god. And it was thought it was induced because of psychological trauma, according to Time magazine. So sad. So after this, authorities actually created a policy that they could not say names of victims until the families had been notified, because that's a horrible way to right. find out. I was wondering about that. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, I mean, something did come from that. Buddy Holly was buried on February 7th in his hometown, and Maria was so broken up about it, she did not go to the funeral. Wow. Two months after the crash, a farmer found Buddy Holly's glasses without the lens in them in a field, uh, as well as a broken watch, some dice, and a lighter. Hmm. So Buddy Holly had a huge influence on all the music that we know and love today. How big, you might ask? Well, his band was Buddy Holly and the Crickets, but you know what other band is an insect? The Beatles? Yes. Wow. According to an article from Rolling Stone, John Lennon and Paul McCartney bonded over how much they liked Buddy Holly. And when they were starting to contemplate, you know, maybe starting a musical career and what their aspirations were... They were very much inspired by Buddy Holly, and there's several accounts of them mentioned in that. And the song, Love Me Do, was inspired by Holly's style. Wow. Apparently, when the Beatles eventually made it over to America and they played on the Ed Sullivan show, John Lennon was having a fangirl moment, and he said, is this the same stage that Buddy Holly played on? Oh, my God. But, like, with a British accent. <laughs> So, in addition to the Beatles, he also influenced artists including Bob Dylan. Mm. So, as a teen, Bob had actually gone to see Buddy Holly on his tour when they were in Duluth a couple of days before the crash. Oh, my God. And in a Rolling Stone article, Bob Dylan, you know, was asked about it. And he said that he remembers he made eye contact with Holly. And he said it was like a life-changing experience for him because it was just kind of like, you know, a slow motion like mm -hmm. experience or out of body. And he said he was great. He was incredible. I mean, I'll never forget the image of seeing Buddy Holly up on that bandstand. Wow. Additional artists include the Beach Boys, Paul Simon, Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, Elvis Costello, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Elton John, Led Zeppelin, just to name a few. Just some small names. Oh no gosh. one no one like big or anything. Right. But, never heard of them. Right. So one last thing I will note is 
this whole journey started because I asked you, like, did the music really die? So another influence is obviously Don McLean and his favorite song, American Pie, which plays tribute to the late rock and roll star. So Don had said that he wanted to write a song about America and it's part autobiography and it talks about how things were changing in America. So Don wrote the song in a single go and the original papers he used to write the lyrics ended up being between 13 and 16 pages long. It's a long song. It's a long, it, it, it's like eight minutes long. Yeah. Which is crazy because it's like one of the most played songs of all time. So mm-hmm. it's like the fact that it's eight minutes right. says a lot too. So in 2015, his original parchment was sold for $1.2 million. Oh my God. If you want that in your home, I would accidentally throw it away <laughs> and be like, wait, what? <laughs> recycle. I would recycle. Oh my God. In multiple interviews, Don has been constantly asked, what does your song mean? And he replies, it means that I never have to work again. Really, though? Like, does it, though? Like, (laughs) did he have to work after that? I mean, he didn't really have to, but he could, you know? But he gets so much, he does earn so much in royalties every year that he Mm. essentially couldn't. Like, it could have been his one-hit wonder. Yeah, it kind of was. I mean, yeah, Yeah. that and... I basically, like, yeah. I, I didn't know the other, um, the Vincent song. Oh, I love that song. Yeah, it's a good song. But, like, yeah. when I think of him, like, that's, it's right. just American Pie. Exactly. Know? Where it's, like, Africa and Toto or Country Road. It's, like, the song that if it plays at a ball game or a bar, like, everyone mm-hmm. sings to it. But it's, like, you right. know, mm-hmm. it's classic. It is. He's, Don said that... Look at me, like, saying Don as if I know him, but... <laughs> Mr. McLean. Mr. McLean. Uh, so in interviews, like I said, he's asked about it all the time, and he's never flat out said more than just a few things here and there because he wants listeners to interpret it in their own way. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that, but it also seems like a... Like, you have to figure it out on your own. Like a cop-out. Yeah, yeah. LA, but... <laughs> What's it about? I don't know. Well, let me tell you. Um, I found a ton of articles of, you know, internet sleuths and a bunch of people have, like, written books and, like, all these articles breaking down each song line by line. So don't worry. I'm not going to do <laughs> – it's an eight-minute song. I'm not going to do that. So I just wanted to go over, like, a couple of key parts in it. Mm-hmm. When he says, long, long time ago, I can still remember how the music used to make me smile, and I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance, and maybe they'd be happy for a while. So the first couple lines is, the song released in 1971, which was about 12 years after the death of Holly, and McLean is looking back to when he was growing up, and the music that shaped him and how he would enjoy dancing to rock and roll. And sort of that nostalgic feeling of when you think of the music that you grew up with, it it does have a fond memory. Like for me, it's Fall Out Boy or Green Day or My Chemical Romance or even mm-hmm. as far back as like Backstreet Boys. It's just like, right. you know, it's it's your soundtrack of, of your place and time at that point. Mm-hmm. But I digress. 
And then the line, but February made me shiver with every paper I deliver. Bad news on the doorstep. I couldn't take one more step. And Don McLean's first job before he was a rock star was he was a newspaper delivery boy when he was a young teen. And he found out about the death of Buddy Holly when he was gathering the newspapers for his route. Wow. So he said that he kind of went into shock about hearing from the death. And he, like, you know, it was his favorite artist. Like, Mm -hmm. he grew up listening to him. He then further goes, I can't remember if I cried when I read about the widow bride, but something touched them deep inside the day the music died. And the widow bride is obviously Maria. And the line, the day the music died, is what has been used to refer to this tragedy to that day. Mm -hmm. So what's more is it's debated that the death of the three musicians was essentially the final piece that did end classic rock and roll because it shaped what we know today, but at the time, classic icons were also changing. So when you think about it, Elvis Presley left for the army. Little Richie left to go become a preacher. Jerry Lee Lewis was blacklisted because of his 13-year-old cousin. (gasps) Eddie Chakran died in a car crash. And Chuck Berry was arrested for taking a teen girl across state lines. So essentially it was, you know, the day the music died because things were evolving. And it was sort of this door that was open to a new chapter of music and so much happened in this period that only would continue to evolve additionally i'm not saying you know don was referring to the other artists i just mentioned but in one article i read about the song the music of the time was simple and innocent and even if all people didn't see it the way don did It was because that was how he grew up, and that's what he knew. And it was, you know, going from that lighthearted things to eventually everything that happened in the 60s and, you know, how rock and roll evolved from there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's the Beatles and there's Woodstock and Mm -hmm. there's, you know, punk rock and grunge and, like, everything that evolved from them. So essentially it was the end of that period. Because he was one of the like last ones that didn't continue to evolve uh, to to that extent. So I hope that makes sense. Like even if other people listening to the song doesn't interpret it as the day that music died for him, it was significant because his innocence and optimism essentially died with that death because it was such a bombshell for him. As for Bye Bye Miss American Pie, some say it can be referred to as the Miss America pageant, which is where it's this sweet, innocent, like, all-American girl who's, like, perfect and everything, or it could just be that American Pie is a classic American staple or an icon. So it's essentially saying goodbye to a golden era or, like, a vision of what America was. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, the 60s were pretty intense and it only continued to go from there. So on the inside of the American Pie album, it says dedicated to Buddy Holly. And um, 
you know, the the full song tells a timeline of histories, kind of similar to Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, because mm-hmm. that one references 118, you know, events in pop culture, sports, science, and politics over the decades. So it, it paints that picture of, of that journey. And this past February was the 50th anniversary of American Pie, and in Rolling Stone in 2001, American Pie was deemed the number five song in the top 100 songs of the century. Wow. So Holly was inducted into the first class of the Rock and Roll Hall and Fame in the 80s, and then in 2012, the crickets were later added. And in January of this year, the Surf Ballroom was deemed a historical landmark. So it's obviously always tragic when an artist dies, especially a young artist, and especially ones that were so innovative like Holly. From his original songs and making his own music to the foundation of the four sets of a band or his stuttering and hiccuping and his singing and Oh, I forgot to mention this, but he actually played the guitar incorrectly, and you might mm. be able to speak on this because you're supposed to go like up and down, mm. but he just went down, oh, so he had to play faster. So that's hmm. kind of I that was his why style. He did that. that was just like what was natural for him. Okay. So when Travis was trying to teach him, he mm. was. So I forgot to mention that, but interesting. I don't. I, that's how I played Guitar Hero when I like. Mm-hmm. So I probably would do. Maybe I'm Buddy Holly in a. Maybe. Mm, no, <laughs> I don't think so. But his his fast guitar strumming and of course his iconic horned rim glasses. So I can't help but wonder how else he could have shaped music if this tragedy didn't happen. After all, he was ranked number 29 in the top 100 artists of all time, which is impressive given that his musical career hardly lasted two years. Wow. So that is Buddy Holly. Wow. Yeah, thank you for that. I really want to listen to more Buddy Holly now. I really like him. I mean, I didn't know because I love his song every day and I didn't Mm -hmm. know that was him. I think... I mean, you were there. I was freaking out. I'm like, oh my God, this is Buddy Holly. Yeah. Anyway, so. Wow. Yeah, music is a powerful oh. thing too. It is. It is. That's, yeah. Sorry. No, that, was, that was interesting. I like didn't know any of that information. I didn't either. So. I don't know. It just, it blows my mind and it makes me yeah. so sad because even like Richie, he was only 17. I know. That's so tragic. So. So tragic. I mean, I mean, shout out to Alan for playing, you know, different artists and going against mm-hmm. the norm and, you know, for, I don't know, it just, it makes me so sad, but I think, like, Buddy Holly is really hot, like, I would be totally into <laughs> him, but. Oh, same. Because another thing that I read in an article was he was kind of, like, an inspiration for people to be like, oh, maybe I can be an artist, too, because it wasn't just, like, the hot throb, you know? It, mm. it was kind of that, like, small town Right. Relatable guy. Mm-hmm. So, and he seemed like a really nice guy too. So, yeah. Anyway, I've had um, American Pie and Buddy Holly <laughs> stuck in my head for like a week. So, I love American Pie. It's such a good song. It is. So, I thought about this because we mentioned it briefly. I don't remember the context <laughs> in one of our Lord knows. recent episodes. Yeah, I, I don't remember. Um, so, here we go. Okay. 
in the late 1500s. Okay. So you were like, are we doing the same topic? I was like, I don't know. Like, when is it taking place? You're like the 50s. I was like, no. (laughs) No. 500 year difference. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. In the late 1500s, a bunch of middle class white English people tried to realize their dreams of becoming nobles, like landed gentry. Landed gentry. Mm -hmm. Um, by getting on a ship bound for North America, Mm -hmm. what they called the New World, on May 8th, 1587. Okay. About 120 settlers left England and arrived on the ship at Roanoke Island off the coast of what is now North Carolina, Mm -hmm. what was then not known as North Carolina. (laughs) Um, and they arrived in July 1587 to form the first permanent English colony in the New World. Jamestown. No. Oh. Jamestown came after that. Oh. Um, wait, wait. What is it? I know this. No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> Marysburg. Williamsburg? What? No. Oh, Williamsburg is in... No, wait. What's the name of the ship? The Mayflower. Okay, oh, no, yeah, it's not no, that. Oh, yeah, that was in 1620. How do you know that? <laughs> Right? I don't know. Okay. Well, it was a little bit later. I remember, I just studied for the exam and then everything left my brain. <laughs> I regret I, it. I can see how it would all blur together. It's just a bunch of English people on a ship for like 50 years. Yeah. Coming to different spots. Trying in to US. find like India and then he yeah. ends up in China or the other way. I don't know. Yeah. They basically. were all assholes. Anyway. Yeah. They sucked. Okay. <laughs> so they arrive on this island, Roanoke Island. There's about 120 of them. And um, I just can't imagine, like, spending three months on a ship. No. Like, that sounds horrific. I, no. Like, a, before electricity. Like, where mm-hmm. did they go to the bath? What did they eat? What did they? I don't know. No. I don't know. I'm, I'm it good. sounds awful. Yeah. No, I'm good. So the governor of this colony at Roanoke was John White. He was an explorer and an artist, a painter. But things didn't go as smoothly as he thought they would. They often never do. I know. In the first few months, there were attacks by the Native Americans in the area. And they were running, the the colonists were running out of supplies. Mm. So they said, Governor John White, please go back to England. Get us more supplies. Oh, yeah. I'll be right back. Yeah. Like, they needed stuff like food and tools and stuff. And they wanted... I'm just going to run to the store. I'll be back in three months. No, six months. Just get on a ship and go back to England. They also wanted him to bring over more people. (laughs) So, when he left to go back to England, he did. He was like, sure. (laughs) He's like, all right, fine. I'll go. He's like, yeah. Um, Can't you just call an Uber? I guess not. He could (laughs) have swam. He could have swam. Um, but he went back on August 25th, 1587. So not very long after they got there, like a month later, right. month and a half that later. That would suck. Yeah. And when he left, there were 115 colonists there. I'm not sure what happened to like the five who like, cause there were 120, you know, people die. And right. Shit of course. Like that. And like, I bet a lot of things wanted you dead. Exactly. So there are 115 colonists, 87 men, 17 women, and 11 children, including John White's daughter, Eleanor White Dare, and her daughter, Virginia, 
who was the first baby born in North America to English parents. Aw, happy birthday. And her name was Virginia because um, after Queen Elizabeth, because mm-hmm. she was the queen and the virgin queen. <laughs> and uh, are you, Why are you laughing? Because, like, I doubt she was actually, you know? Right. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. I'm not going to analyze that part of her life. Also, shout out to BuzzFeed Unsolved um, because that was one of my main sources here. They do a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So John White left his entire family basically um, back in Roanoke and he left to go to, to England. Mm-hmm. However, when he arrived in England, England was about to go to war with Spain. Oh, dear. And uh, Spain had a really big, strong armada. Mm. Um, so like their ships, their Navy was like really powerful. And so England was like, we need every ship to so he can help go us back. in the war effort. Yeah. It's like, can I borrow your car for a <laughs> Exactly. We're going to draft your ship. I mean, that's the simplified version. He tried to go back, I believe once and... <laughs> How do you try to go, like, did he make it to port and he's like, ha and like unrolling the sail? Yeah, I don't remember why okay. he didn't make it the first time. I think maybe they ran into bad weather or something, okay. um, which is a recurring theme. But so he was unable to return to Roanoke for three years. Um, and he finally returned in August of 1590. So li- like literally three years. When he got there, nothing was there. Oh, my God. The entire colony was gone. Like, no one, like he had no idea what happened to them. Oh, that gives me goosebumps. Yeah, they just seemed to disappear. However, there was a clue. Oh, no. I mean, oh, yay. <laughs> Carved into a fence post the was, f- what? was the word Croatoan. Meh. And carved into a tree was Crow, C-R-O. But that's it. Like, you know, it's actually pronounced crew. No. (laughs) Okay. That's creepy. I know. I actually remember learning about this in school, but like very briefly. Mm. Um, But I feel like all the cool things were like brief. And then it was like John Adams. I know. (sighs) So there was an island at the time. I mean, it's it's still there, <laughs> called Croatoan Island. Did that disappear too? <laughs> oh my God, that would be even weirder. Yeah. No, it's called Croatoan Island. Uh, it, today, it's known as Hatteras Island. Hatteras. Yes, but at the time, it was Croatoan Island. It was home to the Croatian Native Americans. So he tried twice to sail down. It was 50 miles south of Roanoke to sail down there to like look for them. But both times he had he ran into storms and he couldn't get there. That's a sign. I know. And um the ship he was on was privately owned. I don't know, for some reason the guy who owned it was like, no, like we're not gonna do it again. So he went back to England. Damn. Um and moved to Ireland and died in fifteen ninety three. There. R.I.P. So like he didn't he never found out what happened to his family. Which is kinda sad. That's really sad. The thing is that there was no, a few times people kind of like tried to look for them after that. Mm -hmm. When Jamestown was established in 1607, Mm. Captain John Smith, he sent a couple expeditions to look for the missing colonists. And he kind of started this 
I don't know if it's like a story, but a tale, like a rumor um, of finding these Native American tribes who had lighter skin, hmm. who might be descendants uh-huh. of the colonists. So at the time they disappeared, it's likely that um, their contemporaries didn't really look for them that much or, like, really even like try. try to find out what happened to them because it was so common for people and expeditions and stuff to right. North America to just fail and people would, like, die and disappear all the time, <laughs> which is kind of sad. That's really sad. Okay, so there are... A few different theories about what could have happened to them. I'm going to start with the weirdest ones. Okay. Um, Mass alien abduction. Okay. I can dig it. The other important thing to know is that no one ever found, like, a mass grave or any evidence of Mm. bodies, like, conflict or, like, an attack or anything. Oh, that's weird. on On the colony. There was just, like, nothing. Okay, what if they tried to build rafts and go back to mm, England? That's a good theory. They saw castaway. <laughs> Wilson. I will touch on that as well. Wilson? Um. Yes. Yeah, so it could have been a mass alien abduction. That would explain the disappearance without a trace. Honestly, I think that's the most possible. Mm. Another theory is that there was a zombie plague. Okay, that's also... This guy named Andre Freeman from the Zombie Research Society, which is apparently a thing. That's a career path? I don't know if he gets paid for that or what, but... <laughs> oh. Well, we don't get paid for what we do either, so it's fine. You're right. We don't. We just do <laughs> it because we enjoy it. Um, Hashtag ad. So if there was a zombie plague, since they were on an island, it would probably be contained. Mm. And if they were eating each other, Ew. then there wouldn't really be anything left. But right? they would... Well, there would also be, like, remains, right? Like, Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, this one archaeologist from Harvard says that he has found evidence of mass cannibalism on Roanoke. Oh. However, I haven't really, like, read a lot about that. So okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what his findings are, okay. to be honest. Others believe that the colonists were murdered by the Native Americans. And this is interesting because... This colony of Roanoke was not the first colony on Roanoke. Mm. There was a previous expedition in 1585 um, to 1586. Ooh. And so the, the English had tried to colonize Roanoke at that time. Um, the governor of that colony was a guy named Ralph Lane. And he was like a terrible person um, and like horrible to the Native Americans. Mm. And he wanted to try to prevent an uprising by the Native Americans because they had been attacking the colony. Um, so he killed local tribal leader um, Vingina. Oh. And so that didn't work out for them. Right. <laughs> and eventually they fled back to England. Okay. Um, and then the year after, they tried again. That just sounds exhausting. I know, right? Like, my God. It just, it doesn't sound fun at all. No. Like, not even a little bit. Like, I'm not even having a little bit of a good time. Yeah. Like, for no one. Like, the colonists, like, probably not. They're, like, starving and cold and whatever. And they have to be on a ship for three months. And they don't know where they're going. Right. And then the Native Americans, they're like, what are these people doing? Like, why are they here? Right. (laughs) Like, can they leave now? They're bringing all these diseases. Right. And they, like, are trying to get rid of us. Right. So, the most 
common theory about what happened. Tell me. Is that the colonists from Roanoke assimilated into uh, local Native American tribes. Okay. There's a guy named Manteo. Mm-hmm. He was a Native American of the Croatan tribe who lived on Croatoan Island. Mm-hmm. And he actually went to England a couple times. He went there in 1584. And then in between the two Roanoke expeditions, he went back. And then he likely sailed back with John White and the new colonists in 1587. Queen Elizabeth made him a lord. When he got back to Roanoke with John White and the others, he was baptized. And John White declared him the chief of the Roanoke and Croatan tribes. I don't know, like... How he, White was just like, you are now the chief. Like, right. without consulting anyone. anyone. Right. Um, I don't really know, like, what his authority was there. But anyway. He put a little sticker on it. He's like, here you go. Right. It's official. Manteo eventually went back to the Croatan tribe, back to Croatoan Island, and lived there. Yeah, that's one theory is that because, you know, like, so many people are like, they disappeared without a trace. But actually, they, like, wrote a note. Right. You know, they're like, all right. I'm, on the fence. I'll be they're back like, soon. Croatoan. Right. Like, there, there you are. Like, that's where they went, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, many people believe that's what happened. This guy named Scott Dawson, who's a researcher from Hatteras slash Croatoan Island, he wrote a book recently, I think it came out last year, called The Lost Colony in Hatteras Island. Roanoke is often called The Lost Colony. It's based on 10 years of excavation at Hatteras slash Croton Island. And he, that's his position, is that um, the Native people who lived there took in the English settlers mm-hmm. and basically assimilated them into their tribe and their way of life. There's a theory that Maybe not all of them assimilated because oh, right. it would be, if there are over a hundred of them, it would be like a really big strain right, that's on true. the tribe. So it's possible some of them were killed mm. or, you know, no one's really sure. But this other guy, there's just a lot of guys talking well, about this. Of course. <laughs> Named Mark Horton. He's an archaeologist in England at the University of Bristol. He worked with Dawson, who wrote that book, and... Dr. Mark Horton says that, quote, it's not rocket science. This is what he believes. He's like, as, as I mentioned, you know, they, they left to know, like, that's where they went. Like, to him, it's, like, straightforward. Another professor, Melinda Maynard Lowry, who's a history professor at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, said, sure, it's possible. Why wouldn't it be? People don't get lost. They get murdered. They get stolen. They get taken in. They live and die as members of other communities. Mm. And she wrote a book in 2018 on the history of the Lumbee people, <laughs> L-U-M-B-E. The Lumbee people are descended from dozens of tribes in a wide region, including eastern North Carolina. Mm. So uh, she believes that also that the uh, Croatan villagers took in the English colonists. She said the Indians of Roanoke, Croatoan, Sectoan, and other villages had no reason to make enemies of the colonists, and said they probably made them kin. Mm. Different tribes were kind of trying to, like, 
ally with the English because they were, I don't know if they were powerful, but they're trying to use them to fight against each other. And so it's possible that the uh, Croatans also saw the English as someone, as people they can ally with. So they create a partnership. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Dr. Lowry also said that the lost colony story is based on the incorrect premise that native people also disappeared, which they did not. Mm. They're around today. Also, on Hatteras slash Croatoan Island, archaeologists have found objects of European origin. Oh. Like in their digs and stuff. Including broken bowls from England, the hilt of an iron rapier sword, a slate writing tablet, and aglets, which are copper tubes used to secure wool fibers. But nowadays, aglets are the things that are on the ends of your shoelaces that keep them from fraying at the end. Oh, I used to... Mm -hmm. So those are aglets. Oh, I've seen copper aglets. Well, I learned a lot, but I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) There you go. However, some of these objects were found among other objects from about 100 years after the disappearance of Roanoke. Mm. So no one's sure if, like, these are were passed down or, like, how they got intermingled into these other sure. later objects. Another theory is that the colonists moved inland to a spot, yeah, west of Roanoke. I thought this was kind of interesting because, as I mentioned, John White was an artist mm-hmm. and... He created, from 1585 to 1593, he worked on this watercolor map of the North Carolina coast. I love that. Which includes Roanoke and um, Croatan, Croatoan Island. Mm. And in 2012, a group called the First Colony Foundation asked the British Museum, because that's where the map was. Mm-hmm. They were like, can you take another look at this map? Mm-hmm. Like, There were these two patches, small patches on the map. And patches were common at the time because maps took so long to make sure. that if they made a mistake, they couldn't just, like, start over. So they would put... <laughs> Dang it! <laughs> right. So they'd put a patch on it. And underneath one of these patches, they x-rayed it or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they do, you know? I right. don't know. But they found that it was covering a four-pointed star outlined in blue and filled in with red. So this, um, the people who study the map have a theory that it represented a fort of some kind. Mm. Also, on top of the patch covering this symbol, there's some light markings, like mimicking the the symbol. Symbol, yeah, underneath. And some people believe that this is in invisible ink. Oh. Kind of like in National Treasure. Right. The lemon only, juice. Exactly. It would only show up by treating it in some way. Interesting. Some believe that John White did this because he wanted to hide the colony's location from the English court um, because he believed there may be spies in there for what I assume is the Spanish. Mm. So more generally, he wanted to hide this information from the Spanish because they were also vying for power and like a place sure. in the new world and they they would like go on raids and stuff um it's about 50 miles inland from roanoke island mm. excavations there have also found european items including aglets these aglets and man i know like they're 
everywhere. They, you know? they had nothing to do while they waited for White to get back, so they're like, well, I guess I'll make an aglet. <laughs> right. <laughs> I found my calling. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, as I mentioned, the the Spanish, they actually sent out an expedition to try to wipe out the colony. Oh. But they couldn't find them. Oh. Which is good, I guess. Because the Spanish saw the the English as like a threat and wanted to control shipping from North America. Can't we all just get along? Like, no. Why? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so the this site, this inland site, is referred to now as Site X. Hmm. And it sounds like the early stages of Area 51. Exactly. It's funny because I don't know what article it was, but there was some quote from someone where they were like, it's like the Area 51 of American That's history. That's weird. Oh. Yeah. There's also a spot called Site Y, which is in a field two miles north of Site X. Mm-hmm. And they, they found European ceramics um, as well as at Site X. Like the most plausible theory at this point, in my opinion, and that many experts agree on, is that some of the colonists went to Croatoan Island and some went to this inland site. So they mm. they like split up basically. Okay. And they, they were both and then they both assimilated into the local Native American sure. groups. One source said that this type of situation where people split up is really typical. For example, in a situation like a shipwreck where Order breaks down, and then you end up with different survivor camps. Mm. For example, in 1586, when the first colony was there and failing, Mm -hmm. um, and they were running out of food, the governor kind of sent the colonists, like, across the region to different areas, including to Croatoan, to forage for food. Mm. So it's kind of similar, like, sort of spreading them out. However... Many authorities are also very skeptical of all of these theories. Mm. It's, it's They believe the aliens, don't they? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's extremely hard to date these pottery shards that they've found mm. at the different sites. Yeah, so like I said, it's difficult to date the pottery shards, and it's also really difficult to trace the other items back to the colonists themselves there's no evidence that they specifically own these things Mm. and there's just so many different stories and theories that it's really difficult to know for sure what happened because no one no one knows right and sources from the era aren't very reliable other theories include as you mentioned that they tried to sail back to england and they got lost at sea yeah Mm -hmm. but somehow they yeah Wilson, I'm sorry. Wilsonsburg. Yes. Yeah, another theory is that the Spaniards did find them and killed them all. There's one one thing that's kind of interesting is there are these stones called the Dare Stones. So John White's daughter, as I mentioned, was named Eleanor Dare. And um, this guy whose name I don't remember. (laughs) So many guys. (laughs) I know. Uh, found a stone i want to say in the 30s somewhere along a river in the area and it it had like a message carved into it Ooh, ew spooky yeah let me let me read read it to you okay 
Yeah, it was found in 1937 by this guy named Lewis Hammond. It's like a brown stone with white words carved into it. Mm-hmm. It's about like a 20-pound stone. It's like a big, oh, it's it's a a big, big rock. Yeah. yeah. He brought the stone to Emory University to have it studied. And it says, so there's like, the original text and spelling is a little bit strange, so there's an interpretation online. Okay. But on one side, it says... Ananias Dare in Virginia. So Ananias was the husband of John White's daughter, Eleanor. And Virginia was their daughter. And it says, Ananias Dare in Virginia went to heaven 1591. Any Englishman show this rock to John White, governor of Virginia. Oh, it really said that? Mm -hmm. And on the other side, it says, Father, soon after you go for England, we came here. Only misery and war for two years. Above half dead these two years, more from sickness, being twenty-four. A savage with a message of a ship came to us. Within a small space of time, they became frightened of revenge and ran it all away. We believe it was not you. Soon after, the savages said spirits were angry. Suddenly, they murdered all, save seven. My child and Ananias, too, were slain with much misery. Buried all near four miles east of this river upon a small hill. Names were written all there on a rock. Put this there also. If a savage shows this to you, we promised you would give them great plenty presents. And then the initials EWD. Eleanor White Dare. There's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to unpack. After this stone came about, a total of 48 stones were (gasps) claimed to be discovered. However, most academics discredit all of them as fakes. Like, even the first one. Oh. They they think they're, they're, like, hoaxes and not real. I mean, it's pretty elaborate. Yeah. However, the first stone is different from the others. Like, after this one came out, it generated a lot sure. of buzz. Okay. And so then they started to come up with these other ones. So some believe that the first stone is authentic. Okay. Which would be an incredible clue as to what happened. Mm-hmm. However, no one has found the spot where these bodies were allegedly buried because it says that their names were written on a rock there. No one's found it. So there's really no, like, good conclusion for this Mm. piece of evidence, this, this stone, this rock. One last note is that, so like I said at the time, People probably weren't surprised that they disappeared and, like, didn't really mm-hmm. care that much or didn't really try to look for them. Yeah. But in the 1800s, this style of writing, this, like, romantic historical type of writing became popular. And people were like, ooh, like, this legend. Wait, writing on rocks became popular? No, like, like a I historical okay. genre. Okay. I'm, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> that would be pretty weird. <laughs> like, the fad of the 1800s is writing But it, like, weighed 20 pounds, right? So could you imagine mm. being like, I wrote you a love letter. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Don't show it to anyone. Uh, I'm going to throw it at your window. Yeah. Oh, oh my. Oh, Check yes, Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> at that point, so people started being more interested in it, and there was this whole mystique. In the 1800s, people would write these romance novels about it, mm. and then, I, I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the podcast, but you do know the lost cause of the Confederacy? 
It's like, it's basically after the Civil War, the Confederacy was like, we need to rewrite the narrative of what happened. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So they were like, the war wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights and like all this stuff. And that's how this like myth of the Confederacy started. Um, And why they still, okay. Yeah. And so like, interestingly, at least I think it's kind of interesting, the, the lost cause, like, uh, supporters or whatever, they took this image of Virginia Dare, the first baby mm-hmm. born to English parents, and made her into this, like, white supremacist figure. Really? It's really weird. That's like, interesting. Yeah, they would write these, like, stories about her as, like, this pure white, like, woman, like, surviving in the savage woods of north america okay um i don't know but she was like appearing everywhere in these like stories and stuff as this like racist kind of narrative interesting Um, you'd think it would be like the opposite yeah i don't i don't really understand it but i don't either um there's also a musical what (laughs) called the lost colony okay is it good um did it win a tony so there's a website, thelostcolony.org. They actually perform it outdoors oh, on Roanoke Island. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it was. It started in 1937. Hmm. And... It's the same year that The Rock was found. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. Hmm. hmm. Okay. Publicity stunt. It received a special Tony Honors for Excellence in Theater in 2013. Oh, cool. It was a favorite play of Franklin Roosevelt. Oh. It's been kind of described as, like, nationalistic. Um, I'm not sure how accurate it is. I want to say it's probably not very accurate. No, I don't think so, but... But, yeah, it's just interesting, like, the legacy of the story Mm -hmm. and how people have kind of turned it into this, like, big mystery. But, I mean, I don't know. I kind of would go with the theory that they were assimilated into the Native American tribes. Mm -hmm. Because, like, why write Croatoan on a fence post? Right. If you're not going to go there. Especially if, like, you're in danger. Like, that's something... If if you're carving it, it's not, like, a quick thing. It's, like, just in case, you know? Yeah. It's a note. But... um, Maybe they were like, oh, we're being so helpful. Like, he'll be able to find us right (laughs) away. And it's like, what is it? Where did they go? I mean, I guess he tried to look. He did, yeah. But it didn't pan out. Which is kind of sad. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was this YouTube comment on one of the videos I watched about it. And it was like, you think getting ghosted is bad? Imagine being John <laughs> White and getting ghosted by a whole colony. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I mean, he left for like a year, like three years yeah, or whatever. Yeah, three so. years. So. I mean, oh, my God. It's like every man that comes back in your life after. <laughs> they're like, hey. Uh, Sorry, Sorry, I was in the shower. I had to fight in this for the Spanish <laughs> Armada. Um, um, I can't do next Tuesday, but <laughs> yeah. So that's Roanoke, the Lost Colony. That's so wild. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Oy. that's chilling. Yeah, but like survival back then, I can't even imagine. Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine. I think also I read that at the time that the the colony was there. The island was experiencing the worst drought in like 800 years. Well, that'll do it to 800 so. years. Okay. I don't know how they know that. How did they measure that? Like, I, I did they ask they... the stars? Like, what did they do? 
I think they, I read that they like cut into some old tree roots I or trees and they could measure by the rings. Oh yeah. Which is so cool. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. We will never know. No, we probably will never know for sure. That like message on the rock freaks me out though. I don't oh know. yeah. It really, it freaks me out too. That, that really, I'm uncomfy. Yeah. It's, yeah, it freaks me out. Like. I don't know why. It just... Yeah, it, I don't... Exactly. It's just like... Yeah. I, I don't like it. Yeah. I can show you what the letters look like. It makes me very... Weird. I, I can't describe it, but I'm just very uncomfy. Like, that's what it looked like, and there's the interpretation. Like, see how the spelling is and stuff? It's, it's like, from the time, but yeah, it's weird. I, also, this came up... Um, This came up recently because... Again, I was watching Supernatural, and yeah. they based this whole episode on Croatoan being a sign of a demonic illness. So, what? But that's not in any of the popular theories. I think they just made that one up. Sure. <laughs> Ooh, that's spooky. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm very unsettled. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, especially like if any number of people go missing, but let mm-hmm. alone like an entire freaking. I think it's aliens. It's plausible. Or Atlantis. They found Atlantis. That that could be too. Why hasn't anyone brought that up? Bermuda That's a good Triangle. Question. It's not really close to there. No, wait, wait, wait. They made rafts and then they were sunk in the Bermuda Triangle. I mean, yeah. Like literally anything could be true because no one knows. Yeah. <laughs> so they accidentally made themselves invisible and they mm. don't know how to undo it. They time traveled to the future. They became trees. I don't know, but I don't like that rock. I don't like it. I don't like it. I'm uncomfy. Thank you. I definitely. Thank you. I remember we talked about it, but I didn't remember anything other than that. But now I'm definitely not going to sleep. So thanks. Oh, Mission accomplished. I'm going to listen to Buddy Holly. Oh, good. So you get to be <laughs> serenaded by... <laughs> yes. So sad. It's all so sad. Well, let us know what your favorite Buddy Holly song is. Let us know yes, your favorite theory. We would like to thank the artists that have helped us. Our music is composed by Colin Whitlish, and music production is by Justin Toom. And our cover art is by Erica Chase. Would you like to tell them where to find us? You can follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you'd like to submit a listener report, you can email us at theinsomniareport at gmail.com. You can also just, you know, give us a suggestion on what you want to hear. You can say hi. You can let us know about your favorite episode if you have one. We'd love to hear from you. We like to chat. Yes, we do. We're friendly. I'm Margo. And I'm Elizabeth. Thank you again so much for listening to today's episode. Please tune in next week for another true crime episode for episode number 27. That should do it for now. So go listen to some cool tunes and go decipher some stones. Okay? That's your homework. (laughs) Class dismissed. Sounds good. Good Good night. night.